Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to Excess for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many appearances. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at DazzlerWayWay on Twitter. That's right, Dazzler, like in the age of apocalypse. And I'm Arturo. I'm Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And more importantly, today we are joined by a very special guest, letterer extraordinaire, VCs, and friend of the pod, Ariana Marr. Hi, I'm Ariana Marr. You can find me on Twitter at Commentary, which is C-O-M-M-E-N-T-A-I-R-Y. Every time I see your name, I automatically go to Bravely Default and the character Airy from that. So <laughs> just know that I think that's a very positive association. Well, maybe not Airy in particular, but Bravely Default, very positive association. Okay, wait. Good to know that it's Ariana and apologies for every single time we've recorded and I've called you Ariana. Oh, that's that's totally fine. My dad is from Boston and my mom's from Brazil. So uh. they both say my name the both different ways. So that's, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to work main entrance operations in Disney World. I also used to work parade audience control. But when I was main entrance operations, which I didn't do very often, I remember one day and I'm working at the main entrance and this dad points at my name tag and he looks down at his 10-year-old son and the dad kind of even kneels a little bit and goes, see, buddy, he's got your name. Your name's not that unusual. And I said, hey, yeah, man, you're Nico too. That's awesome. And this 10-year-old looks at me with these big eyes and goes, Nico, that's a stupid name. My name's Nico. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and I just remember my I just jaw agape, and I just wanted to be like, "Look here, you little shit mouth bitch!" But instead, I was like, "You know what? Have a magical day, kid. Just go find all the magic you can. I want you to find all of it, and I want you to bring it home with you." And in my head, I'm thinking, "And then I'm going to send the demons after you for stealing." But you know, instead, I I let it go. But it's good to know that you're next time you're at Disney or anywhere that sells like souvenir keychains, bumper stickers, anything that has like people's names on it. Try to find one that says Arturo. Good luck. <laughs> I would struggle to find any. I actually think like Arthur as a name doesn't even get enough play these days. Nope. I feel like I would struggle to find art. Yeah, yeah, you would. That's that's tough. Meanwhile, you know, Nathan over here. Really? But... Is it popular? Is, it, is my name in vogue again? Oh, no. Yeah. Uh... I figure they just look up like the top 30 popular baby names in alphabetical order and then just like make those license plates up. I'm fine with it, but I think my name gained popularity because of a singer. So mm. yeah. yeah. I mean, a lack of volume control and there you go. That's all it takes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's the one joke I use. I, I think she's an incredibly talented woman. I think she is a mega star. Like I will never know, uh, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be like, Hey, 
<laughs> it's just only funny every time I order a, a at Starbucks and it's a. Grand, <laughs> oh, my oh, that's awesome! Like, Shut up! <laughs> oh my god, I I would exclusively just order grandes. That's so great. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's my preference, and I just don't want to admit it. So there you go. <laughs> okay, all of that somehow means we're here to talk about Hellions number eighteen with the incredible Zeb Wells on writing. Z Carlos and Steven Segovia on art, Rain Barreto on the incredible colors throughout this issue, VCs Ariana Mar, what? On letters and production. I love seeing that extra production credit. As well as Tom Muller on design and John Hickman on what I have to assume is one of his final head of X credits. I feel like I've been saying that since October, but you know, it, it does feel like the time is winding down. Stop so, reminding us, Nico. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm not sure how things are going to look coming forward because now that Hellions and Sword and Excalibur, I finished lettering, like, I'm not assigned to any X books at the moment. And it's no, just because no. I, I know, I know Clayton still has X Men and he's got some stuff coming up. And I think there's Marauder still going on, but I don't, I don't have any assignments. And that's just like, uh. <sighs> I mean, I have lots of other Marvel assignments, and in DC, they put me over as the new ongoing for Detective Comics. So I'm congratulations. I'm happy, but at the same time, I'm I'm suffering from you know a, a lack of X Men in my life right now, and it's, it's tough. <laughs> well, I think that's such a that's such a like key part of the last couple of of years with X Men is this feeling <laughs> that all the creatives, or not all, let, let let's say like nine out of ten creatives involved, seem so powerful passionate about x-men seems so aware that like jobs come and go this nothing is forever but mm-hmm. holy shit i'm on an x-men title i'm in this x-men world right now during krakoa how exciting like yeah and even the people who are like used to working on these properties like the editors get so excited about their work and it's so much fun working with them on it because they're very invested on how things are going and how the story is developing and and just working on these things together like both Mark Bassa and I, we've been working on Hellions together for a, since I started around issue two, like when I started out at Marvel. I think it was issue two or issue three. And by the time we got to the last issue, it was the easiest thing in the world to work on Hellions because we just have it all. We Everything would just go one thing after another really quickly. There wouldn't be anything in our way. Like a lot of books, things get in the way or things get slowed down or, you know, there's like some kind of bump in the road. But with Hellions, it's like I'd get the pages early knock them out early Mark would send them back to me early and then we're like okay we're, we're set and I I miss that easy rhythm of things how did that feel working because like I, I just gotta say like Hellions I mean and this is not like an unpopular opinion I think a lot of people feel the same way. Hellions was such a surprise breakout star book from this this post-Hoxpox era. How did it feel working on it? Like, did you realize the gold that was in your hands while you were working on it? Or was it a surprise to see the fan reaction? Not surprised? Like, how, how was that from your perspective? Because as the Jordan D. White of our show, I can tell you, 
the number one request I had was, can I be on Hellions? <laughs> Every week, the question was, can I be on Hellions? Like, we, we run a, a Google form for mm-hmm. everybody to click what their top pick, what their regular pick, or if they're going to pass on that book that week. Mm-hmm. And usually 12 people fill out the form. I could always tell it was Hellions by the results because it would have <laughs> eight out of 12 put top pick for Hellions. Yeah. It started out, the mindset was this. When I started on Hellions, it was my first few months at Marvel. I had just gotten through a, a month or two of training under Joe Carmanga, who's like, he, you know, he letters most of the books in Marvel. <laughs> he was pretty much like my mentor for about a month, a month and a half of, of him and I working together to letter books so that I could get used to it and everything. And once I was kind of set on my own, he's like, yeah, there, it's not like he was teaching me how to letter. He was teaching me how to letter the Marvel way and how to do the Marvel process because it's a very different process from what I had done as a freelancer because we, we do production and pre-production and stuff like that sometimes so I have to know all these elements. When I was kind of set on my own, Corey one of the other letters was balancing out some of his work so he he gifted me some of his assignments and one of them was Excalibur and the other one was Hellions. With Excalibur I was super excited because it was like holy crap this is all of my favorite characters and Betsy so you know I grew to like Betsy. But everyone else, it's all my favorite characters. So I was super, super excited about that. I was hyped to work on that book. And then I was handed Hellions and I just kind of looked at it as like, I mean, okay, like Psylocke is cool. But now that she's been separated from Betsy, which, you know, a lot of that I had complicated feelings about. But like now canon is herself and is like, who is she? I, I hadn't read Fallen Angels. I like I've, a lot of my context can be missed because I'll read the comics I let her, but sometimes I don't read outside of that. And then like the other characters I only vaguely knew getting to work on it at first for the first issue or two like the uh, Madeline prior arc you know with the Marauders I was like I'm not sure what's going on here but this is kind of fun this is kind of weird by the time I got to the last issue of that initial story arc I was like I kind of like this but then when I got to the Ten of Swords crossover thing where they introduce you know they start off on their little adventure and then the next issue they introduce the locust file like when they start off on that adventure and then they hit that adventure it's like oh my gosh i think i like th- i think this is my favorite comic book <laughs> <laughs> because all of a sudden it got the the wackiness got turned up to 11 but so did the consequences mm-hmm. when you were a kid and it's the first time you had watched south park because south park was a thing back then like kenny dies or something and you're like what the hell that's so dumb and ridiculous but at the same time <laughs> it's dark <laughs> I guess where that's really started to fall in love with the series I was working on because it was already a fun series to work on like as a letterer mm-hmm. but for me to like just get engaged with the characters it was the the big crossover that was like wait a second I need to pay attention to this storyline this is amazing and it's so great because Hellions did such a good job of weaving into and out of that event in a way where it was a side mission it, they weren't like central to it but they all the characters walked away from it 
and it wasn't just a pointless side mission. It had real consequences with yes. the Locust Vile mm-hmm. and with, you know, the resurrections. And it was it was just great. I mean, it was, you know, sometimes I think there's a, a little bit of a, like event fatigue mm. and some titles go through more events than others. Like Sword comes to mind. Sword, I think, went through Empire, like right out of the gate and then King and Black, right? Yeah, I was startled by the direction of Sword working on it until I realized that Sword just kind of like it's a cosmic hub it's also like a hub for these major storylines where a lot of stuff that Al was writing kind of and all the stuff that was going on in Krakoa it was kind of crystallizing in sword so it doesn't work independent of itself it's a station that's dependent on all of the um, different places it connects to so I kind of appreciate that about sword because there is an underlying storyline here but it's not of any conflict between the characters on the team the team runs relatively smoothly like she like Brand hired this this team to work together it's more of what affects the team so like reading it independently may be difficult but it i think it was never the intention for it to be just an on its own kind of book hellions on the other hand i think it works very much on its own and yet both both series kind of work their same way when it comes to big events where you don't have to venture into this part of the this corner of the world during this event but if you do it tends to be more rewarding than getting caught up in the main storyline it's like the the story of the hellions in there there during the ten of swords arc is not consequential to the arc but at the same time it's still very consequential as you said and i thought that was fascinating how they can use the opportunity of an event to build up the characters and the storyline that's going on inside of itself instead of it being dependent on everything else going on in the story with Hellions, that was the the weird thing. When it was announced, I was like, okay, I'll get it. It's an X-Men book. I, I got it. I got it. I'm a completionist. I got to read it all. I'm like, <laughs> ooh, and Nanny and Orphan Maker, like, oh, they were so, like, cheesy and X-Factor. Am I going to really like this? And then by the time we get to that Ten of Swords arc, like, they just like, oh, my God. I'm like, Nanny, Nanny, I just fucking love her. She's the greatest. Like, I'm like, give me that egg. And, like, I know, like, in that issue, like, like y'all had her ride a horse in that visual, like, never <laughs> not stick with me. <laughs> because holy hell that was amazing (laughs) well then we have to i I have to so okay i have long said anybody who comes at wheezy over bird brain is missing the fucking problem because the fucking problem was nanny and orphan maker (laughs) and everybody's like no no it's the fucking chicken nugget and i'm like no 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 it's the demented version of that pair of socks that takes care of the muppet babies it's that that's the problem right so then here comes hellions and when this show first was covering hellions it was that first issue before the pandemic and then The show transformed wildly after the pandemic, and I was a boardwalk snack. I was such a salt lick about the first issue of this series and really not appreciating the direction for the characters. By the end of that first arc, I found myself engrossed and engaged despite myself. Exactly. when Nanny and Orphan Maker ultimately get what I wanted them to get in the first place, I was left feeling very sad. And I think one of the greatest testaments of this book is that I was left sad. Like, mm-hmm. there's, just, it was a profound sense of loss, 
not to spoil anything for anybody about a 4,000 year old motherfucking story, <laughs> but it's Orpheus. It's that moment where you're just like, don't look back, you idiot. Don't look back. 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 I said you were going to look back if you fucking did the thing. And like, there was no ending for a nanny and orphan maker that wasn't this, but no. it was so well earned. Like that's, to walk away saying that was well earned. And I love your point about the context of in and out of the crossover, because my actual favorite issues of this are the two parts that feature the fill-in beautiful, brilliant art by Carmen Canero, who just like fucking destroys it for two goddamn issues with the Lotus Vial. I love it. So goddamn cool. And then that they're ultimately the bad guys that lead to sort of the apex darkness of the series. And also transversely back to what you were saying about sword that Tarn the uncaring is just like, Hey guys, I'm up in sword now trying to kick storm in the face and she's biting me on the foot. Like <laughs> it is wild how hellions not just superseded my expectations, but told me I was foolish for having it. Another really great thing about Hellions is that it's essential for reading of Krakoa of this era. I mean, with the end of Hellions, it's the end of this part of the era as well, but there's always going to be these questions and Hellions helps answer those questions because you can't have these Krakoan arcs in, in all these other books like Excalibur and Marauders and X-Men and not think what the heck is Sinister up to because he's just there <laughs> and you have have to you have to know what he's up to and getting to have hellions explore that and then also explore what do you do with the so-called like problem kids it's interesting that krakoa's stated mission for the hellions is an abject failure Oh god, yeah. Because they're like, oh, what do we do with all these problem kids? Well, we'll just put them all on a team since they're very violent. If we need like some kind of violent team, we can just send them off to do it. Sure, we'll just, you know, Sinister can take care of them. That's that's fine. And it was m so much less of a let's do something purposeful for these people who do not feel any sense of purpose or want or may not even want a purpose, but we need to put someone so that they don't cause havoc like empath does <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> well but... i love i love that even like at in the end we find out that yeah that we're giving these these you know the garbage pail kids a chance and a shot at redemption but really we were just keeping tabs on sinister and mm -hmm. emma had like a built-in kill switch so for everyone that was like why the hell would you include empath well this is exactly why you know like yeah. it's it's nice that it like Zeb did such a great job in assembling a team that nobody cared about making us all care so much more about these characters than we ever thought possible frankly like I, I mean we call him Grey Crow now and he's he's a hot himbo you know tough guy <laughs> with a heart of gold but like he was Scalp Hunter the unfortunately named genocidal, genocidal goon yeah. like he had yeah. no characteristic other than being one of Sinister's goons that wasn't afraid to get his hands as bloody as possible and that was it and then here he has become so much more than than you could have ever expected while not
not being transformed into a perfect character. Like he still has his junk that he's trying to work through. Mm-hmm. And and that's just, it's incredible. This is like yeah. the best book. I think the really amazing thing for me in reading it is that for them performing the mission is that it's like, they're not incompetent. They, they can do the stated mission. The problem is, is that it was always Sinister who was making them do what he wants to do and uh, whether they know they're doing it or not. And the, with Krakoa just leaving that all in Sinister's hands, there was never any hope for any reformation or redemption of them as people and as citizens of Koa. They were never going to find their place and find themselves in society in Krakoa with, with the decision that the council made. They're, they just kind of, let's put all our chaos in one corner and forget about them until it becomes a problem. And that was a very bad idea on their part. However, the characters themselves, it's not so much that they find redemption or they inherently change as people is that they find answers for the things they need answers for within each other. And I think that's a really special thing because Grey Crow is still hyper violent. He will he will go off on people, but it's far more directed because now he feels a higher amount of stakes to the people he cares about. Like he he feels this kind of big brother protectiveness over Wild Child and and Orphan Maker. He's has a desperate crush on Canon. <laughs> he even feels a kind of weird brotherhood with Havoc where he he mm-hmm. likes to like ra- embarrass him in public by being like, "Hey, hey buddy, hey best friend." <laughs> In a, in a lot of ways, it feels almost like this book was not so much about fixing, being fixed when, when you've gone through uh, or done horrible things, either been through horrible things or inflicted mm-hmm. horrible things upon, upon others. It's not so much about fixing it and, and, and repairing any of the damage you've done as much as it is learning to live with that trauma and to work around it and to function with it still as part of yourself, right? Like there's no, yeah. there's nothing that Grey Crow can do that it's going to to absolve him of the the Morlock massacre. Point exactly. Blank, period. Like that's yeah. Just... The, the Morlocks can come and kill him every day. Right. Um, right. And they they do certainly try that often. And it's still none of that will make up for uh, what he and his team did. Confronting his team and accepting what they were. Confronting himself as a person. Confronting what he's done in the past. In the end, kind of accepting who he is is one of the really great story arcs within Hellions based around Grey Crow. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, other characters can show that like you can go through things and inherently not change. Empath does not change, but that in itself is an interesting growth of his character because it it just means that like you can you can say you want to redeem people, but when you have no structure in place for them and just leave them on their own, like some people may find redemption in other ways, such as through each other, and other people are just going to be who they are because you can't inherently change people. People change themselves, but they would have to want to. And empath, his life is so much more easier by him controlling other people's feelings than it is confronting his own. I feel like the Oprah Q music should start up and I should be saying that coming back after the break, we have Dr. Nate Burkus because like, (laughs) I 
is he? I don't know. Is that a doctor? I don't know. I really I think that's an interior designer. I, like, I, think <laughs> interior. I think he makes hand towels. Oh god damn! All right. Well, Doctor hey, Seuss you know was That'll a doctor too. That'll soothe your right? soul. Interior design. Yeah, I'm a big Christian Siriano guy, and he just released a line of geometric based interior art pieces, and they're fucking amazing. <laughs> anyway, so I really extraordinarily love your exploration of how change has to come from within because you know i've always felt and it's so stupid but like we all kind of have that character that we shouldn't dig you know what i mean like we're like yeah that's i romanticize the torturous relationship between lester and matt and that is of course bullseye and daredevil and i think that like you know electra is putting the me in dom as they're like queen standing above both of them so like i and like wilson is funding the whole thing and like typhoid mary is filming it i have very specific (laughs) needs you know what i mean so um we all have characters that we shouldn't feel so good about and i feel like gray Uh, sabertooth has entered the chat yeah (laughs) that's how i feel about that's how i've always kind of felt about gray crow in an inexplicable way there was just always something there that i think i identified that because he was native american i could only associate the horrors he'd been through so i guess it's just something that really resonates with me so i always found him forge these characters were an insight into a culture i wished i understood better right and so i always kind of identified with gray crow in some significant way but he was still a fucking monster (laughs) i couldn't love him till he wanted someone to love him and there is something so powerful about because i don't think he's changing for conan i think he's changing so that someone like conan could see in him what he sees in someone like conan and it's just so important that it's different and the exploration of that sort of identity of character is one of the things that i think you could only do in a book like hellions not that jerry dugan isn't you know fucking slaying it to death on x-men but X-Men isn't a character piece. Hellions mm-hmm. is a character piece. It just it surrounds itself with expendables like explosions <laughs> so that you don't notice all the character. <laughs> it's it's sort of like secretly playing Love and Rockets out on a Michael Bay film. It's such mm-hmm. a contrast of identity in such a palpable way. Yeah, if you only read like like main titles like X-Men and you're like, okay, these are the heroes, but then you see something like Hellions where Grey Crow punches Cyclops in the face... Yes. And you're like, what the heck? Who is this asshole? But if you've been following Hellions, you're like, hell yeah, do it again. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Like with even Grey Crow, like this is like probably one of my favorite lines of the like this conversation with Conan at the end. Like where he goes, you know, there's a way you look at me. Like there might be something good in me. Oh. And having noticed it, I'll never be the same again. Like, yeah. holy shit, that's beautiful. <laughs> like, like, I, like, and God bless the artist and the colorist for giving us that beautiful beautiful sunset page or like oh god that, i was so that, messed up when i saw it oh, i was like oh god i was so messed up when i first saw the pages because mark sent me the pages and he's like okay here's the pages in the script this is going to oh. wreck you because he knows he knows how i get worked up over it wait wait, like, wait. When, so when you get the pages have they been colored it's the uncolored pages usually wow. sometimes i get them in color but mark tends to send me stuff early because we just it's a well-oiled machine between us by that 
that point. He knows how emotionally I get caught up in Hellion storylines. Like when we <laughs> had the Hellfire Gala, I cracked up so hard. Oh, those were so good. <laughs> <laughs> Me and the editor just couldn't shut up about it because it was so freaking funny. He's like, yeah, this one's going to wreck you. And it's like, oh, no. He's like, yeah, this is the last one. And it's like, yeah, I figured. As soon as they reintroduced the Locust Vial, I was like, oh, no. This may mean things are coming to an end. And sure enough, several issues later. So getting to the last two pages, it wrecked me. And then seeing the colors a few days later, once those came in, I was just, I was messed up. I loved how it was handled. Something that sometimes, especially major writers probably forget, is that Marvel stories are a collaborative round robin that goes on forever. You could play with characters and send them in a certain direction, but don't if you make it too definitive, like no one else could touch this, you've, you've irreversibly, you know, done this thing, then that's not cooperative to the rest of the round robin, right? right. It's like, oh, here's a Captain America story. By the way, he's Hydra and it's like, well, that what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> my my resistance to that story was no secret. It was very <laughs> public rage pyre. It was yeah, like... No, fair. Like, as much as the fans get worked up about it, imagine being, like, the next several writers who have to pick up those storylines. Like, you wanted to do this kind of storyline, but now you've, you've got this to work with. You have to untangle this pile and then and then you can move on to something new. But with how Zeb Wells does it, this is what really impresses me by him as a writer and made me a total fan, is that he's so good at being able to tie up his story with this last issue, but at the same time he kind of, like, places all the toys back in the toy box nice and neatly where you can find them if you were another writer. He's like, there is this special friendship between Canon and Grey Crow and they have an understanding of each other and it could be romantic and you could explore that or it could be non-romantic, but they'll always have that friendship. You always have a feeling that if we don't see Grey Crow in any Krakoa storylines for like, if ever, it's still fine because you imagine he's opened up like some kind of barbecue shack by the beach in Krakoa and so, you know canon goes by there every friday to like grab a meal or something you know oh i love that I, i'm ready for that book yeah i could i think mean, you literally took the words right out of my mouth that's something that i appreciate so much about what zeb has done here is exactly what you said he puts the toys back he he ties up loose ends but he also leaves these great threads that others can choose to pick up or yeah. not you know even he doesn't lock up that toy box it's like it's nice and open right there well even the even the toys that he did lock up nanny and orphan maker that's awesome like because now mm -hmm. we know that they're off the board they're in the hole exactly where Sabretooth has been for the two years of krakoa mm -hmm. never on page but constantly on everybody's lips when are we getting Sabretooth out when is that happening so it's like a story that's waiting to be told and mm -hmm. that's that's exactly what zeb did here like we're gonna, yeah. we're going to get back to those characters at some point yeah it's not it's you know there's no onus on anybody it's not like a a pressing matter like oh we have to make them not be nazis because <laughs> they're <laughs> the symbol of america but it's it's like a gold nugget they're just waiting for somebody and to a character every single damn character even empath he puts them back and leaves them in a better state than he found them every that's, single that's character amazing. in the book yeah yeah, yeah. i i'm super impressed by that especially like empathy's like i'm not going to inherently change this character to someone different because he's kind of a necessary evil kind of character. If you need someone to do the dirty work, he'll do it happily just because it amuses him. And that part doesn't change, but we still come out
out of Hellions understanding him a little better than we do maybe many of the other Hellions, you know? Uh, the original Hellions I'm talking about. I feel like I've been talking a lot lately about the role of the editor and the job the editor plays in terms of crafting a medium and crafting a media and, you know, talking about how you, you, you do need to keep empath kind of a bag of shit because <laughs> he needs to be that available bad guy, like you said. And it's one of the concerns I have about the, re- the potential redemption of Cassandra Nova, as Arturo and I were discussing over in Marauders earlier this morning. Mm-hmm. And we were also talking about the sense of emotional and moral obligation to previous writers that every writer has when they pick up a book. And mm-hmm. so what you're saying about Zeb wanting to be a good dude is something I was just talking about. I feel Dugan has done very well. And I feel as though like the redemption of some of these characters was already such a big get from day one mm-hmm. that the end of the book, leaving a number of the characters where it does, almost feels like a complete season statement of a full thought. You know, like they were told, look, they'll be redeemed by the end. Just hang in. We don't have a lot of other surprises. Just hang in. Mm-hmm. And the book was just zany promise and it it, i don't know i really felt like it came due by the end in a more fulfilling way than i expected at 17 because Mm. i left seven i remember i left the room for 17 and arturo kind of yelled at me a little bit he was like what do you mean this just gets a b plus and i was like it just gets a b plus i'm really nervous and I did not expect 18 to leave me satisfied the way it did. Well, it's it's hard to finish up a series, right? Like so many series, I mean, in my career, getting to see the end of a storyline in a series, like a series just end, is... I think it only happens maybe once in a blue moon. And even then, it tends to be stories where they had further arcs planned, but the book wasn't popular enough and got canceled. And so we're just going to tie it up at this arc kind of thing. And I've had series where they'll plan it out so carefully, take years to produce, and it'll be canceled by the second issue. Not not a Marvel series. It was an image series, but it still broke my heart. But like getting to see this arc get complete, is kind of the benefit working on um, Marvel books is that there is enough popularity that people will follow. So it's if if Hellions was any other company, most likely by before reaching the end of the first arc, we'd be told we're canceled. You know. Well, and I would love to hear if you have any insight on on and what you're at liberty to talk about. Like around when was the creative team notified that this was going to be wrapping up? Because it's not an intuitive number to end on eighteen. I know. I know. Nico's about to jump in and say, "Oh, well, actually, that makes three perfect trade paperbacks, which is one perfect omnibus." And because he shut the fuck that- up, you left out that I was going to point out that <laughs> Runaways ended at eighteen too. But really, good job knowing what I was going to say. Good job, I love you too. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm old school. Like I've been, I've been crying and begging for a hundred issue run of something for for a while now. Specifically, I'm traumatized from how quickly X Factor got canceled and how it felt like. Uh, 
Leah had so many balls in the air and then she had to tie everything up in a in a ridiculous amount of time. And so, yeah, I, I'm just curious like to know how much of a heads up Zeb had here because for what it's worth, I, 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 I could have done with another 82 issues, but what we got was a complete story, like complete, multiple complete story arcs. To be honest, like not beating around the bush, like the litter always finds out last. <laughs> like I suspected the series was heading towards an end, like several issues before they were like, oh yeah, you know, next issue is going to be the last one. Did you know that? And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> So I'm not a part of the deeper part of the process. I mean, that's the thing with collaborating and making comics is that to make it the most smoothest way possible is to have an editor and to have the editor is that they are kind of the relay station for everyone. That way you don't have weird arguments crop up between the writer and the artist over like, you know, some minor detail until someone cries. Like you have the editor to hear everyone's notes and then compile them and like prioritize them and, you know, you know, to tell everyone what they need to know, like a like the big communication hub of things. A lot of times, since I'm at the end of the pr- process, I don't find out what was the goals at the beginning of the process. Sometimes I only get insight because on occasion, the first issue of a series might have still have the remainder of the pitch <laughs> at the start of the script, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> like I like I know a few secrets that were later revealed on Sword just because it was stuff mentioned in the script in the first issue. So Al Al has stuff planned. Just trust that Al knows what he's doing. And I would say at this point, seeing how Zeb crafted Hellions, I trust him on what kind of story he's going to tell. If he's given the room to tell a story from beginning to end, I trust him. And there are a number of writers I trust this way, and a number of writers I would never trust this way. <laughs> But but I kind of, when I started to realize it's like, this is like Locust Vile is here. This is, this is like hitting a kill switch. Once you, once the Locust Vile comes back, you know, things are coming to a head, like in a major way. I feel like, could they have done more story arcs? I think there was a potential there after the gala and just before the Locust Vile started that like, yeah, there could have been much, many more story arcs to build on. But the fact that that was the last story arc it's like yep this is it, whether it was planned or not like this is this is going to be the path to tying everything up and i was i had to go through a range of emotions there as someone who was like emotionally invested in her work because i, I i'm not a robot i don't just like it's not just like some kind of factory thing where you input stuff and then i output the lettering i mean there's certain books that i get assigned that i'm like I'm not excited for this or this character or or this whole thing that's going on right now. But I'll do it because uh, it pays the rent. There, there are occasions on that. But I'd say the majority of my work, I'm like, oh, God, what's going to happen next to my favorite characters? <laughs> you could know, you, could you explain to us the letterer's urge to sometimes maybe slip in a change to the script? <laughs> <laughs> OK, hold on. Let me just let me just say. There is, as a writer who recently got my ass handed to me by an editor and the letterer literally laughing at my pages, and mm-hmm. like sometimes as a guy who was like, no, that has to say cannot. Uh, I, <laughs> I really, I just want to say I'm sorry on behalf of all writers. I'm sorry. I don't make too many changes. I may reword a sound effect if it helps the situation, but the writer will always have precedence to change it back to what they 
they wanted if that works better. There are certain things that letters will inherently change either because of preference or because they know the editor is going to come back with a change anyways, or SMP is going to come back with a change and you just want to avoid that in the long run. Because like standards and practices are not going to let you see really bloody guts kind of stuff. There was an issue of sword that was so violent recently that like I was like, okay, I'm just going to cover up all of these really bloody scenes with sound effects because I don't want to hear from SMP about this. <laughs> when it comes to like script and stuff, it's it's mostly just if I spot a spelling error, I'll change it. And if the writer comes back of like, no, no, it has to be this. And it's like, okay, I'll change it back. But it's very minor things. I would say like 2% of that is is me just like fixing up something, putting a comma where it has to be, that kind of thing. If I'm given a sound effect and it's something like crack with like a K-R-A-K-K-K and I'm like, yeah, no. I'm Maybe gonna not. <laughs> Maybe no Maybe subliminal racist, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just like if, if I don't feel comfortable with it, I'll just do, I'll just, you know, s- take out a letter or two. It's like they are not going to notice or care if, because a lot of times they're writing a sound effect like arg with like five R's and if I put in four R's, no one's going to, you know, you know, get on my case about it. And then there's that brilliant Demon Days page where you oh. all contributed individual oh. pieces and it came together like the world's most brilliant triptych. And sometimes I just think about how that's like, I don't know, that's Demon Days Watchmen moment. I just think that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Wait, which which part? I forget. I'm so glad you're asking because I'm lost too. I'm like, what? Huh? Where like the lettering, uh, the, the symbiote lettering on the temple oh, page. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was wondering if you meant that or the poetry in the um, Gwen issue or because like that was one where there was a haiku that Peach Momoko really wanted to show in Japanese as well and um, it it was uh, Zach who writes the scripts who had to come up with both the haiku and the translation to work Um, well it was a translation of a Basho haiku but still uh, he was he was the one who had to put that together and he's like okay find a way to put that on the page and I spent a lot of time being like how do I put a Japanese haiku along with the English and for it to like low naturally. And so that was an interesting collaborative thing. The most recent issue was really weird. Uh, it had Storm and Thor basically. No, that thing was a bang. Yeah. yeah. And I went a little extra on the sound effects on that one. I spent way too much extra time when I really shouldn't have because I had 10 other books on my play. And I thought it's like, okay, I think I did a good job. And then Zach comes back to me and he's like, hey, in like, you know, the writer's notes and stuff. And he's like, hey, can you, uh, could you make it the, the, you know, Storm sound effects on this? page a little more swirly you know like in oh my goddess you know the manga and i'm just like send me a reference dude i haven't read oh my goddess since high school like i'm texting him on the end, like what the fuck do you use your words dude and he's just like he's like terrified of me and i'm like dude i'm having a bad i'm having a bad week i'm not taking it out on you but tell me what you mean <laughs> That is my husband's favorite thing to say to me. He's like, you said you want food. If you don't indicate a meat type, I can't make you food. (laughs) Like a lot of, uh, a lot of comics collaborations, all about communication. Like if you want to make a good comics, you're going to find books and books and books on whatever process you want to learn. But the most inherent thing is being able to communicate because unless you're the next Terry Moore, Stan Sakai, you're going to be working with people, you know? and you, you don't want to have to run into walls and that's why editors are so important that's why being clear in your notes and script is so great and um, I've always found a lot of a lot of really great collaborators in this business so 
just keep that in mind. If you want to make comics, learn how to use your words. <laughs> I'm nodding. I'm like sitting here nodding. I'm like, yes. yes. <laughs> You're missing repeatedly. the point entirely. Yeah. <laughs> but like back on Hellion, I really enjoyed this issue, but I'm also really sad. It, it felt like one of those things where all the characters completed their arcs in the only way they could have been completed, where things are open-ended because their lives aren't over. Like even for Nanny and Orphan Maker, it's, they could have only made it to the pit because this is what happens when you give someone who is not stable a gun and put them on a team where they're allowed to go off on people. And his only worldview is based around violence where his point of um, like finding any kind of friendship with others is like cleaning guns with Grey Crow. And then you put this, you know, they say he's not a kid, but he's still of this mindset that's not fully developed and he goes off and he's violent and something really tragic occurs and it's like well we have to punish you now we feel justified by this and it's like dude orphan maker is needs help and you guys didn't give him help and now your only answer is to put him away (laughs) and that's messed up but it's like, it's, it's like, a lot of consequences. I mean, yeah, is- and I feel like any society that inherently does not look after um, those most in need of some kind of structure, some kind of society that's willing to provide for them, um, and they don't provide for them, that is inherently a mistake on and a critique of that society. As much as Krakoa is a utopia for mutants, the fact that they don't cover their bases and and look after the people who need it most is an inherent flaw in their society. It shows that they're still very much as much as they see themselves as homo superior they're still very much coming from a homo sapien mindset right right of, yeah. of like we'll look after everyone and we feel entitled to do so because we are the strongest the most elite but we inherently do not understand or empathize with those who do not have our advantages and sometimes we have blind spots and when we have these blind spots instead of confronting them we're going to put you in a pit <laughs> And which is why they need a precog. <laughs> like, hello, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Help you get rid of the blind spots. <laughs> it's wild that during this entire era, we have come up with all of these miraculous medicines and we've terraformed Mars and we've like helped defend the Earth from two different death. alien invasions. Yes. Uh, third, if you count, you know, a Ten of Swords and, and the Iraqi, like we've done so much, but our punitive justice system still is is about as creative as throwing somebody into a hole and putting them on layaway until we can deal with them later like i i (laughs) need i absolutely need like an x's for therapy book where it's like (laughs) a couple of telepaths you know that are working with with troubled mutants to to help people get over their trauma and to kind of to to help to help these folks that that obviously need it and like this yes and i want i want you know hellions to star in that book because I think they need it the most. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Especially like, after after what they've gone through under Sinister's care. Like it breaks my heart to see Wild Child's ending to his story being so solemn, but at the same time it shows that like he's his conclusion is that he's he's going to be willing to try. Yeah. He's going to try and if not make himself better, like calm himself down. But at the same time, there's a loneliness there. Like um he he wants to be a part of something bigger than himself but the thing that he felt like he belonged in was taken out from under him yet again like like the many times he's done off of flight and all those things it's just he's, yeah. he's a pack mentality creature you know and mm-hmm. he's responsive to an alpha 
And as a powerful beta, he feeds off of his alpha's energy and creates simpatico relationships with other betas in his pack. And I think that's what he's, I mean, I don't mean this in a dismissive way to poor Kyle, but Grey Crow is obviously his superior in, in so many ways. And, and, too, yeah. Yeah. and yet he sees himself as his brother, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And like, yet I, I think they all see Conan as, as the leader and that's yeah. sort of yeah. inarguable. And yeah, like if if Conan was like you know um, Japanese high school style gang leader, like Grey Crow would be her second in command, and and um, and Wild Child would be like the young and helpful like minion, you know, and he'd be yes. happy in that role. He just wants to follow them and have them give him direction, right? Sorry, I'm just imagining Cannon in those like kind of long, long plated skirts and the the face mask and the club. I just it'd be so cool. <laughs> so what you're saying is Conan is Regina George, and yeah. that makes Grey Crow Gretchen Wieners, and that means that Wild Child, I guess, can tell that there's a sixty percent chance that it's already raining. He's Karen. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do I love I love that arc for Wild Child too because having grown up way long ago and reading the Alpha Flight arc where he actually did become Wildheart and you know maybe got more control of his facilities like and the whole X Factor era like it's it's kind of cool to see him maybe want to go back to that a little bit after what happened in that the whole Weapon X run which also started some really great redemption for Draco too but like mm-hmm. Hellions has really like taking that to the next level um but like I, I think it's just like the first step of hope for him and hopefully hopefully that gets picked up and continued and like we can just see him grow like i know look i, I know he's a person i know he's a fully formed you know character and whatnot but i'm totally here for him just being happy being a submissive puppy and and following orders like the first time i ever developed any affection for him was during the age of apocalypse and it was because he was on a leash connected to creed you know mm-hmm. like i i i think that what you were saying nico about finding power in the in the position of being a beta or or a sub is cool mm-hmm. you know like that that was the only thing missing from that last panel by the by the the sunset on the beach was their puppy right next to them yeah yeah if uh wild child just came up and sat with them on the beach it would be a perfect mirror of the the start of the series right or like wild child's like in the background digging ferociously in the sand <laughs> Trust me before before this before this issue um hit my inbox and I started working on it, I really hoped the last scene would just be like all of them on a beach and just Orphan Maker and Wild Child digging up sand pits or whatever, right? Oh. But nope, that did not happen. All I wanted was for them to be happy and none of them are happy at the end. And at the same time it's still terribly satisfying because I mean they even though the the start of the series and the end of the series mirror each other by being on the side of the beach watching the sunset it shows that these characters were inherently interiorly changed by the experience and i feel like especially we get to know psylocke better like canon's whole whole existence has is still so fresh and new and yet the uh x-men trust her implicitly and it's almost like because it's borrowed from betsy borrowing her body for you know ages and ages and ages and this series helped confront that while it's 
at the same time being like, there is no clean answer to this because, you know, the metatextual part is that there was never any good answer to why this was done to her and how it was never undone. But now we get to see who she is as a character and who she is, is that she has a very tough front to put up. But if you get to know her like interiorly, you know that she's a very emotional, very caring person that fiercely wants to protect the people around her that she cares about. She's kind of, I guess she's kind of a Scorpio in that sense, you know. And she's going to be serving on the Marauder alongside yeah. Kate and Akahiro and Cassandra Nova. I can't, okay. Uh. I got, it's, <laughs> she's the greatest villain of all time. I just don't know how she, I, okay. So, yeah. um, you know what? I felt that way going into Hellions though. So like, I'm going to give it a shot. And I think that was even one of the comparisons I made. So, but, uh, my feels, I, uh, my feels. Now, you know, I think there's one major reveal that we have not tackled with quite the same ferocity that she bears her midriff. And that is one Miss Madeline Pryor. I have feels about this scene. And one of the big things that stood out about this scene, everybody follow me on a journey. Long ago, this show made a big deal about the time Xavier would not stop looking at a picture of Scott and Maddie post-coitus. And we, oh, I do that all the time on Twitter. <laughs> we unleash on that panel for just hours and hours at a time. Um, I feel in some ways like Scott's sort of like, hey, Alex, I've got something for you. It's a lady. <laughs> I'm not going to use her anymore. So if you'd like, you can. And I was, I, I, look, I'm not a Summers. I don't have falling out of a plane head trauma. I don't know what it's like to be able to destroy everything but your own brother. I don't understand how they always wind up naked wrestling and they have some complicated <laughs> stuff, right? It just felt but, that much better to flip back in the book and see Grey Crow punch Cyclops in the face again. Yeah. <laughs> Bold of you um, to say that you're not a Summers when there's always a slim chance that everybody might be another Summers brother. That is, <laughs> uh, yeah, and yeah. How did everybody feel about the Havoc Cyclops scene? And, you know, Ariana, how did it, like, how do you... How do you letter that? Like, because that spectacular Madeline on page 26, the... In the jumpsuit. <sighs> the dynamism of that, of the, you know, the apex of the A creating a contextual sound like and there are no elongated letters like you said earlier where you were like four r's five r's what's the difference you know you didn't elongate the name it just really hits really well the way it's formatted how did everybody feel about this sequence i i thought well it's funny i actually have the version of hellions with the cool peach momoko madeline cover because i love it so much but it's interesting how everyone was really excited because this was a return of the goblin queen and it's just like she's only here for a few pages but it's enough it's enough to establish a lot of things all at once and um like cyclops he makes it seem like this is a gift to havoc like oh you went through the trials and tribulations of having to go through hellions 
uh, here's your hero's reward, a woman. And it's like so many stories before and so many stories that will come after is like, oh, the hero does something, you know, great or terrible or has to go through a thing, but he gets rewarded with a woman at the end. Here's the princess in the castle. The way that is, is just kind of like, it feels gross, but then you turn the page after they're reunited and how that conversation flows between Havoc and Madeline. It's like, oh, she knows it's gross. She, she's not happy to be in this situation and she's pretty pissed at you know all of the summers for existing and that is very satisfying because it leaves so much potential like will she just you know go off do her own thing and be better than all of them and that's her best revenge living a better life or is she going to unleash holy hell on them which is also really great (laughs) And I love the glimmer of that possible holy hell because as he's explaining to her, they brought you back. It's because of me. And she goes, because of you (laughs) resurrected at the whim of another Summers? Were my Mm -hmm. feelings considered for a moment or did your quivering lip outweigh the whole of my, oh, (laughs) sorry, lost the forest for the trees there. (laughs) Whoops, whoops, just slipping into my psychotic goblin queen shit for a second. Don't mind me. Like, oh, Zeb is so Havoc to be completely oblivious. Yes. For him to hear her go off and then she's like, oh no, it's, it's fine. And he's like, oh, okay. Is, <laughs> is him, is, it's not just, it's just him being a dumb himbo about it. It's just like him wanting to see the world not as it is but how he wants to see it which was his problem from the get-go where he sees himself as this like cool hero but he got put onto like the d team whatever like he should be you know b or a team but here he is and he gets embarrassed to even be like associated with them but at the same time it he's constantly proven that this is the place where he belongs if it weren't for empath constantly messing with his head he would find his you know brotherhood there with cyclops and gray crow and all of them he could find his place there if only he could get past this preconceived notion of himself but he constantly falls back to that so when he sees madeline she's like you're back and she doesn't immediately fall into his arms he's just like okay let's get lunch or something he's like he thinks there's still hope and he it's gonna make him very easy to manipulate i think even though that doesn't show like positive growth in his character through this storyline it it shows that he had the potential, but he he still is missing all the opportunities coming his way to, to try to get better because there's something inherently wrong with him that, you know, being in the Hellions did not help him with. The Krakoan thesis statement for who the Hellions are did not help Havoc be less dangerous, but it's also something that he has to inherently change within himself. He's like completely blind to how much danger he's put himself in. And I think that's interesting. It makes for a good story. And what's ridiculous is, so, okay, Rosen Island tells, you know, St. Olaf stories, and one of my favorite St. Olaf stories is, she says that there's a, a fairy tale called Elsa, the girl who can make bad food taste good, and I actually think that's sort of what Zeb Wells is. Zeb Wells is kind of like the boy who can make bad stories taste good, and this has so many reflections of the gendered disaster that was Chuck Austin's Havoc Polaris story. 
But instead of this being an uncomfortable gendered disaster, he creates a narrative that supports the idea that these characters are starting to recognize the depths to which their patterns are dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's not sinister. They just, some people can't help it. And I feel like Havoc's really coming to a point where he's like, okay, I can't help it. This is just, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. And like, I, it's kittenish in how foolish and Havoc-y it is. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just glad that Zeb put Havoc on the team because it would have been very easy to just paper over, you know, his trauma and his past and he's resurrected and fresh start, clean slate, let's go. Like that would have been... Because they do that with a lot of characters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it for me, Havoc being on the team at first, I was kind of like, I mean, he's a little messed up and sure, he went through that whole Axis thing, but like he's not, you know, on, on the same level as... as somebody who is murdering the Morlocks in the sewers, you know, a few <laughs> years back. Like, it it didn't really click for me, but it became so much more of an interesting story and, and character arc for him. And I think one thing that, uh, that Zeb did with Alex is really captured his dumb himbo energy, right? Like, <laughs> we joke yeah, exactly. about how dumb Havoc is, but, like, there was a time when he was leading, you know, X-Factor and, and he seemed like, uh, you know, almost like a Cyclops flight you know like but there was times he seemed like he was tying his own shoes just fine but you know here we are (laughs) but because even then he was a mess yeah he just hid it better at the time isn't that why he didn't get better though and and and, like he's the one who really didn't get better and maybe regressed more in this run because he didn't want to accept the fact that he was really messed up right i mean like didn't want to do any of the work yeah i think there is some recognition of that if not by himself confronting himself because he doesn't really have a give himself the opportunity to confront himself there's not really a time for where he can like look in the mirror and be like wait what am i doing he just knows something's wrong and there's almost this inherent thing where it's like almost a running joke that polaris and alex aren't hooking up again in this Krakoan world because they kind of both know they're a freaking mess (laughs) (laughs) which i'm so happy about i love like i i used to love them together to be honest like and i know that's not a popular opinion but i i I enjoyed them together but i think they're i kind of love them as exes so much (laughs) more interesting now as x is absolutely and and you know like if we're putting all our cards on the table i personally kind of wish that's what had happened with his brother and gene with cyclops and gene (laughs) i think they would have been so much more interesting as exes as co-parents to all these children from disparate timelines like they could be like functioning divorcees that you know still love each other are still supportive of each other still in each other's lives they're kind of harmful to each other so they have to keep apart right but know that that was a time and that time has passed and we're different people and mm-hmm. you know so I, I i've scott and gene i'm happy that they're happy but like i i like i like exes that that can that can function and i'm so happy that polaris and and havoc are separate because mm-hmm. they're both growing in different ways and it's it's really interesting and at the same time i can understand the people who are shipping um was it havoc and gray crow inside and canon together oh like, yeah absolutely there is like if if that was actually embraced if havoc turned around and he realized that being if there was more time for him to realize that being a part of hellions was more helpful to him than than embarrassing if he was willing to embrace that more i think he'd find more communion with the kind of direction that psylocke gives him because she's a good leader who was constrained by a bad situation and he's a he's not an inherently a leader he's someone who kind of like wild child is like give me orders and i'll focus on that and that way i don't 
have to think 10 steps ahead. Yeah. And so, Canon is someone who's like, I'm looking 10 steps ahead in the hopes that I have a chance to kick Sinister in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and Grey Crow, he's, he's ready and willing to provide brotherhood to the people within his inner circle. And he's like, if we watch each other's backs and battles and we become battle buddies, I will ride or die for you. That's what that's part of Grey Crow's charm. And I feel like the, the great tragedy you can see in Havoc is in the Hellfire Gala issue where he's like, oh, I'm so embarrassed to be seen with these people. And it's like, you fool. They 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 could be the key to you finding yourself in a better place. But even I that, that was exactly even that felt very real. Like these are the people that I get along with more and that I have more in common with the Hellions, but it's kind of embarrassing. I still have, you know, uh X-Men cred where I can go hang out with the well-adjusted people and kind of put on a mask and smile and be charming and everyone's happy to see me. Like I I that hit for me. I was like, oh yeah, I, I get that. I was gonna say he's that high school guy, he's that high school kid who's like, I could be a little bit more popular. Let me go hang out with the A crowd. Oh, I don't know. Or really I could go them. play magic out in the pizzeria with all the guys, but oh that'd be so dorky. <laughs> but he'd have so much more fun playing magic. So like <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I did love Nanny's redemption at the end, her re-embracement of Peter and Orphan Maker. And I really love the little like clever like jab at Kate where she's like, Oh yeah, your mom still lives over on the street in Chicago, doesn't she? Like I was like, that's amazing. And it's, it's one like, way to get what you want. Right? It's like, oh, you won't let me do this thing? I could kill your parents. <laughs> <laughs> it's like classic nanny, but like amping the level up. I ah and it just I love how it ended. I mean, I hate that I hate that it ended, but it's probably one of the best series endings that I've like read lately because it like you can tell everything was realized, everybody was in a little bit better of a place, but like you guys have all said, like, you know, it's not in a place where somebody can't take it and go from there with it. So I'm down with it. Yeah, I mean, I just want to address the the great injustice of this book, and let's just all agree that it should have been sinister being thrown into that hole. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> Like yeah, yeah. if there was any Krico injustice, but I am very happy with with the the injustice of this and Sinister still being out, you know, on the board and tampering with DNA and you know that that's where I want Sinister. I am absolutely shocked that we made it through this entire recording so far without Nathan pointing out Cat's Eye. I was gonna say that I just remembered <laughs> I didn't talk about Cat's Eye. Oh my god! <laughs> go ahead, go go. Like, I was just like, that was like, I mean, the whole book was everything, but seeing my little goofy purple cat and she actually got lines, I was like, heck yes. I, I love, I love that, uh, what he's going. Did you even say a word when they stole our name? <laughs> like, again, like Zeb just knows how to like slip in the little beats of comedy that are just fucking perfect. And, and again, l- making us feel not sympathy for empath. I don't, I don't want to say that, but I've recently just finished binging all of Succession and if you haven't seen it you absolutely have to see it and it's just a great show that shows some truly horrible horrible people doing horrible things and yet you also see them going through their own shit and going through trials and going through you know their own their own pain and feeling for them in in some way and Empath is is very much that of this book like he's horrible bad irredeemable character but you get these quiet moments 
sense where you can tell he's also lonely and sad and broken and nobody hates empath more than empath mm -hmm. i'm ready for all the hellions to you know to get some play but i am happy that they made this little cameo in that page that was nice now it's going to be a case where every time i see one of the hellion like the our hellions in the series characters pop up again even just for a small cameo i'll be like oh it's wild child oh. <laughs> oh. you know that's one of our babies <laughs> <laughs> Please, someone take him out to the beach and play fetch or something. Like, you know, you need some activities. <laughs> really want that so wait looking ahead i know that we've got conan joining the marauders but i, I don't I think, think sinister is in immortal x-men but no one cares about sinister he's just oh, i do <laughs> i certainly do oh that's good to know <laughs> sinister tampering with with the laws of nature no yeah, problem nothing yeah. what could possibly go wrong it's very much like you have you have to put all the toys away but sinister is still in play so you just have to leave him there like that was always sinister was always going to be start to finish who he is but now you get even more insight of just like how much a jerk he can be. <laughs> I'm ready for Grey Crow to either join the Marauders, you know, a couple of issues in on that series, or we get to see Conan coming back home from a mission on the high seas. And there he is like cooking dinner and, mm -hmm. you know, he's got like good music playing and just making a whole environment. Pork. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's he's this, like so happy yeah. she's home and just. Yeah, there's a scene um, in, cause like, like I, I lettered this issue of Excalibur after I finished this issue of Hellions. And I think timeline-wise, I don't know where it lines up. It could be before, it could be after. But I'd like to think it's after Hellions is over. Because in the background scene um, where... Um, oh, the date, what, the date. Yeah, yeah. Where Betsy is meeting up with some of her old friends at a restaurant or at the bar, right? You see in the background, there's, you know, Canon and Grey Crow just having a nice night. I hope they just, she's just like, hey, you want to go out for dinner sometime? <gasps> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, if they just remain, you know, friends forever, that's fine. If a, if a writer gets inspired and take Grey Crow and, and Canon into a whole new direction, I think that's only going to add to their characters because the thing about actual people is that they can do irredeemable things and yeah, you would just want them to be in the pit and not think about them again. But with comic book characters, you could do the weirdest stuff with them. And if you find the right angle, you can redeem them or if not redeem them, like transform them into something that people want to read more of. And I think that's what Hellions did. It didn't make them inherently better people in the eyes of society, but they made them characters that you're like, yes, please get me Nanny again. If I see Nanny on a page calling someone out and breaking a beer bottle to like shove in their face, I'm here for it. <laughs> no, yeah, I definitely, definitely need a creative team to pick up on this hot romance and, and make them like a, a thing forever. Like I, I'm not yeah. one to like, oh, let's marry everybody off or whatever. But like, this is one couple like that I'm ready. Yeah. Because again, the story just sells me on it. And I'll, I'll this is a, you know, a corny but sweet little anecdote that I'll share with you guys. But you know, my parents, God bless them, been married for nearly 40 years now. And my dad, if you ask him right now, uh, he would tell you, he's, he said this to me, like, since I was a kid, he said, your mom was the most beautiful woman in the world. When I met her, 
I saw her and I knew I had to marry her. I just knew she was the most beautiful person I'd ever met and I had to marry her. And that's the way Grey Crow looks at Psylocke. Like, for, that's like, why I married Kevin. Like, Psylocke might be down to, like, go on a, a couple of dates or whatever, but, like, Grey Crow is very focused on the end game and he knows that she is better than he deserves and, and he's all in. And I think... Like, if given cool. a chance, he'd be wife guy 100%. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cleaning her swords, you know, yeah. rubbing her shoulders at night. You got this, baby. <laughs> Get out there, Captain. <laughs> For Psylocke, I think what she sees in Grey Crow—that's, I mean, that's part of why he fell for her so hard, right? Mm-hmm. But she, she sees in him someone who is um, very broken, but also very reliable and very caring. And she sees the potential in him to be a greater person than other great people currently are. I think she's she has very little personal connection with so many people now where people still see her, her body and 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 think of her as someone who's loyal and true and effective. And she knows she's these qualities, but she like who's to say that she's earned them by her own right or because another person had occupied her body for so long. And she so there's like this potential of like having to prove yourself unnecessarily. There's just so much baggage with people in that sense. She she that's why you know she doesn't get along with everyone so smoothly is like there's just so much baggage there you can't just see cyclops and cyclops in her eyes it's like this is someone who who cared about someone who was in my body but wasn't me and it's like it's so messy but when she sees gray crow or the other hellions she sees broken people that need each other and um look at her and there's no baggage like they just know her as who she is and i think there's a lot of of comfort in that like seeing that kind of relationship between canon and, and gray crow is just so nice i guess to finish myself off it's one of those things where it's like i hate to see you go but i love to watch you leave kind of things yeah totally like once i finished lettering hellions i immediately messaged nico and i'm like can i come on your podcast because <laughs> i don't know who to talk to about this because my partner watches uh, like he reads all of it on marvel unlimited and so i've got like another several months before he gets this issue (laughs) wow but you're like his partner what do you mean like he's not there over your shoulder while you're while you're working just trying to like well it's funny because with our studio set up because he's a artist he colors and he flats stuff for other colors too his desk is facing my desk so he can see my screen But he doesn't have the context for what's going on. And, so it just uh, flashes in the night. Yeah. And he's like, don't spoil it for me. I'll read it for free over on Marvel Unlimited. And it's like, okay. Because, you know, that that's one of the small benefits is that I get a Marvel Unlimited account. And it's like, okay. So that's I can't awesome. spoil it for you. But at the same time, I really need to talk to someone about Hellions because I've got all these feelings. And, yeah, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss the characters. I'm going to miss their adventure. I'm going to miss to see the potential of what they could become next. But it makes me that much more excited if I ever see a cover with one of the characters on. It. And I think that's the greatest gift a writer could give to the rest of the people who work on these books is that like, here is a, here is a list to, of, you know, you can add these characters to the list of characters people will be excited for if you just mention them. If you just put them on a cover and you see Nanny there, you're like, well, I'm buying two copies of that. And I think that's that's an amazing thing that Zeb brought to the table. But I think also it's completely carried by having such a good creative team, like the art team behind it, like just the way 
they do expressions and just the mood that was set with the colors is just everything would just come to life and i'm gonna miss the series a lot and i'm very terrified to see the locust file again (laughs) (laughs) getting madeline Pryor back was really just like the cherry on top of this whole thing because like we were just talking in a in an earlier recording today about you know problematic faves like cassandra nova and like how do you justify you know and and shadow king and like there's some sticky grimy villains that it's kind of hard the whole you know promise of krakoa and madeline Pryor. i mean few people are as messy as as this character and the fact that zeb right out of the gate said let's tell a madeline Pryor story and then put it on the back burner let it simmer for the whole series and then ended it with her resurrection like fuck me like thank you the best Hey everybody, welcome back. Nico here again. Now we hope you guys enjoyed that amazing opportunity to talk to Ariana Mar. She is such an insightful member of the Marvel creative team and we could not have been more proud to have her back in the studio. Now from one burning pyre to another, we're switching gears from Hellions right over to Inferno, a big Dante theme kind of going on. And in this next segment, I really found myself like, I don't know, this is one of those things about being the editor of a show where you're not always in charge of the opinions. You know what I mean? So like I get to be a fan and listen and react and there was something amazing about the interplay between these three amazing members of the x-pack nathan drew and josh these scholarly clowns bounce from fanboying so hard to really powerful critical analysis of the material on the page and i just could not have enjoyed editing this more than i did and we hope you guys enjoy and don't forget if you guys like what you hear you'll probably like what you see so give us a subscribe over on twitter at x's for podcast and over on youtube as well i'm nico at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n and until next time guys enjoy this last segment come back next time for part two of our holiday x jam and we'll see you guys on the other side of that krakoan gateway thanks for joining us on another segment of x is for podcast this week doug and warlock have been super spying on the krakoan bosses emma clues destiny and mystique into the appearance of moira and they go mr blonde on her ass and apparently moira 10 actually won but the fucked up world we live in is the result of even more temporal shenanigans from Omega Sentinel. Shit's about to burn. It's Inferno, number three. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by R.B. Silva, Stefano Caselli, and Valerio Schiti. Inks by Adriano De Benedito. Colors by David Curiel. And letters by VC's Joe Sabino. Hey guys, I'm Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Drewsifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me online at at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's right, Dazzler, like in the age of apocalypse. Woo! And I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W E I L, and asleepatthewheel.com. And we now 
and November 8, 2022, as the Dem- progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate here in Florida. You can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. So there, th- this is a fantastic issue of comic we're going to be talking about. But there are some notice, just reading the credits, there are some noticeable, I won't call them red flags, but we'll call them orange flags into like the production of this. So anytime you open up a book and the credits page has <laughs> three pencilers, one inker, and one colorer, like this is something that, you know, was clearly dealt with some production issues. And, you know, some of this being in terms of internally, a lot of it in comics we know externally in terms of supply shortages and supply line backups and supply chain backups and all of that. But I, I can't like, I was about to talk about this with the credits and I opened my hard copy floppy of the issue of an issue that came out on the last Wednesday in November that appears to have been scheduled to come out late in November from all we know. And when I open my hard copy issue, the interior ad on the front cover is for Marvel Studios Eternals in theaters November 5th. When... When the interior ad is for a movie that came out almost a month before this, not to mention that the same studio has another movie coming out two weeks after this, like, there's clearly some questions about when and how this book was supposed to be delivered to us. And I just can't help, like... Like reading this, reading Trial of Magneto, um, you know, what we're getting in terms of the way some of our other stories, and we are hardcore seeing stories like Marauders, X-Force, Excalibur wrapping up now, you know, even if even if the November issues didn't feel like they were, you know, gonna get to that point, they made the hard turn and got there by the end of the December issues. And just where this fits is so it's hard to just in completely lose myself in this book because of that you know they delivered hox pox so exquisitely they backed that thing up they planned they gave so long to make sure that all 12 issues were in with the art from who they wanted at the level they wanted they got everything in before they put out the first issue they backed that train up so much to make sure that that happened and it was and it enriched the reading experience for all of us getting it weekly having no other x-men stories having no convoluted reading orders knowing exactly where we were and having the delivery controlled so pristinely and while in so many ways this is like this is the bookend this is like the dark mirror of Hoxpox. it's also the dark mirror of the Hoxpox delivery because good lord what we're getting when and how it 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 affects the way we consume this book so I guess I guess before we get started and go in, because there's so many great things to say about it, like how was your reading experience, right? Let's start with Drew. How was your reading experience of Inferno number three? I freaking loved this book. Like this is probably one of my favorite issues of the year. When I was reading it, I had to tell my boyfriend to shut up because it was at the part that we'll talk about later, the like the gag part, the part where you're gagged. <laughs> but I do agree with you that the whole issue with release kind of it's confusing when I'm reading them back to back because especially with the the last issue 
issue of Inferno when you have Mystique and Destiny or just Destiny and Colossus being put on the council but then literally in the next issue that I'm reading they're not in that council meeting and it's still empty it's just like I'm just like okay so then it just feels like what was the point in that day of putting them on the council you would need like that flow absolutely it has felt the Colossus on the council thing has been a big the way that that has been delivered across titles has really stressed or made it apparent it's something that pulls me out of the story so for example when we got to the end of the most recent issue of x-force there's a data page that's clearly depicting the fact that you know it's, it's from the chronicler and it's basically telling us that okay like colossus is as we wrap up this storyline so everybody knows colossus is on the quiet council which i guess is good because you know they did that xavier at the door like something's happening is this because colossus started murdering people no 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 no, no. it's because xavier was bringing him on the quiet council glad you cleared that up without ever fucking showing us or you know making that clear or you know addressing it in the book at all but then it's like wait a minute hold on hold on so that means this shit happened after the stuff i saw in the other like if i'm just supposed to line this up based on whether there's an empty seat in between storm and nightcrawler like then this makes even less sense than i thought like like i can't think too hard about it like i i want to try to put this in order but it's hard because like that colossus seat when he's there and when he isn't really feels like it's messing up the feel of what these stories are for me there's there's three events that are going on right now that are really hard to place the time so we've got the dark hold event going on which features wanda maximoff is a huge main character right and that obviously goes on at some point before trial of magneto so we've got trial of magneto going on at the same time as inferno too so somewhere in the like mix of it dark old must have happened way before trial of magneto happens and then inferno happens so i think all the books we're seeing wrapping up seem like they're pre-inferno because we're going to get whatever the new paradigm is introduced after inferno is completely over but but, but that's what i'm saying with no x-force is like colossus was introduced on the council in was it inferno 2 mm-hmm. yeah like in inferno 2 and that's supposed to have like so wait so x-force is going on along this time like are they trying to segue and dance in between the raindrops like it's so confusing i can't i just can't place it all and i like i hate that because i like to be able to place like if i'm gonna like read a book i want to know hey this happened before this and this and this like but i can't place it i really wish at this point that everything they're doing in november and december just kind of happened as it is and then our, in january we got inferno in four straight weeks that would have been good like like they did with Hawk Fox. So like they wrapped everything up. Bam, you had Inferno. Just drop everything and bam. Then you I'm move on. I'm also super fucking confused by the fact that like, because I try to avoid solicits and I've, I've seen some of the things that are coming. But then with all the Destiny of X line, the fact that they're plugging like X-Force, like new series are continuing in April. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck are you doing? Like January, February, March. Like, hold on. All of these... Like Excalibur will be back with Knights of X in April. And I'm like, oh, what the? (laughs) Wait, wait, am I just on like, am I on a 10 lives, 10 deaths of Wolverine diet for for the entire (laughs) spring? Like what the fuck's happening here? 
That's mm. what I mean. And they'll they'll like, they'll stop it all for Wolverine, but they won't stop it for Inferno. I think the idea. I, I know all of the delays have really fucked shit and, up. And for sure, a solid number of this, a solid number of this is out of their hands. And maybe they thought, okay, like you know what, it's gonna get a little bit, but people can roll with us. And then it got a lot of bit, and they couldn't control <laughs> that. But <laughs> it's a thing, like. Looking back and reading this in trade three years from now, it'll be a lot easier. Yeah. But, but, you know, like Hoxpox had something extra. You know, like I was listening to a podcast talk about the long Halloween um, earlier this week. And, you know, one of the hosts was like, I got this monthly as it came out. And as great as it is to read now, like, I can't tell you what it was like, like being strung along by this month by month. Like it was mm-hmm. an experience. Hoxpox was an experience. We got to like X Twitter became a community and it didn't did. all try to fucking verbally murder each other every day <laughs> for for 12 straight weeks. Like it was yeah. a good X Twitter was a good thing for three solid months because of Hoxpox. And yeah. and and Inferno is, if anything, like the opposite of that, like in terms of delivery. So, you know, this will be enriched by getting it all at once or being able to read it in order, I think. But it's it's throwing some loops in my brain right now. Yeah, dare I say X Twitter didn't even really exist in the form it does now before Hoxpox. Like it was just like as loosely scattered as as maybe Avengers Twitter, which I don't really know if there really is an Avengers Twitter. Just a few accounts that are like I like the Avengers, but like that was totally what X Twitter was before Hoxpox. But it actually like made a community. It made like it was so mind blowing that people were like, "Holy shit, I gotta get back into the books." And I'm hoping for that for inferno and it's got some of the elements of it and we just got to see what's going to go on with it but i it's not expansive enough to be as mind-blowing as hoxbox was and we've seen with some of these crossovers like i'll even say with empire you know empires is not on the level of hoxbox right but empire was enriched by being delivered weekly which we know wasn't their intention but things got backed up due to early covid and then they were sitting all the books so they're like fuck it we'll drop it week by week and it made it a better communal reading experience like people were making a point to read it weekly knowing you're only digesting one thing a week getting to have that discourse and community almost like with um like with a disney plus show where like we're getting one episode dropped a week and we're all like holy fuck did you see that and we're talking about it and going nuts for a week and then we get the next one like it's being chunked for us nicely and after getting that delivery method it's kind of hard to go back to like we're going to tell a story over six months and the whole rest of our line is going to fucking change so much over that point period, but like roll with it. Um, And then this, where it's like, we're going to tell three different stories that don't take place at the same time. Well, we're going to break them out over a really long period of time and they're all going to be making to mix with each other. Like that's just even like that. That's not the way. And, you know, yeah, we, we got to give them some credit for this. But I would have liked to thought that if any office was capable of handling or rolling or just, dis- you know, controlling their distribution and storytelling. Like I have I have higher expectations of the X office because they raised the bar so high on themselves over the first year, year and a half of Donovex over Hoxpox 
over the lead up to Hox Pox with the way that they dispersed Uncanny and Age of X-Men. And even though people weren't fully galvanized on board yet, those rolled out like fucking gem. Like those rolled out perfect. So they, you know, they raised the Jordan D. White raised the bar on himself. I, I'd agree the timing like the timing piece is just so fucking suspect and uh like I wish they had I know I, I get why they're not doing it because there's so many stories backed up and they already had these stories going and ready to go for the January, February, March, April stuff. But like I, I really wish they had taken that time to push back the launches to give us a really strong inferno event like we had with Hot Hawks. Because we do talk about detractors. We talk about things that pull you out of the story. And and it's it's typically a negative. Like if something, if you're reading and you're getting immersed in this story and then there's facial art that's so bad or characters that like all the female characters look the same and you can't decipher them or, you know, like the coloring gets all wrong and suddenly Storm's Caucasian. Like these are things that pull you out and we're like, like these, these are story detractors. They're bad. It's not coming from the writer. It's not not coming from the artist it's not coming from the colorer here like letterers sometimes like letterers you know unsung heroes always sung villains you know a bad lettering job everyone notices it's not coming from joe sabino here like these are if anyone like these are editorial issues not that editorial did it bad but editorial didn't do as good you know someone has to at some point we have to say you know who who went okay we'll do it like this like someone you could have just held on to these. You could have held on to them and distributed them later. You could have controlled your distribution more. You decided to go with it. And, you know, there, there, there's take your shots. All right. So now we get into the beautiful story here. Let's get into Inferno number three. I find it really interesting. So everything Drew said about Inferno number three is everything I said about Inferno number two last time. Inferno number two was my fucking jam. It was gorgeous. It was everything that I had been waiting for since Hoxpox 2, which is, I think, one of my favorite issues ever. Like it, Inferno 2 was so good. I'm not saying that this is a bad. I, I am really, really curious and interested, like from my perspective, perspective like that this hit you like that so drew talk talk to me like give us all of it give us why like this just enriched your comic loving soul for me because like i've been really like into for me it's like the plot of it um and it, it is like those gags and like the that you know that's just like the creaminess of it all like that's what really hit me because it was so unexpected and i just like literally did not see it coming at all like i was floored just uh, destiny is becoming one of my favorite characters the way that Jonathan Hickman writes her I think is like so clever the way that they did the whole like showing what the future is supposed to look like was not really what I thought my thought for this whole era was that those events were going to be played out and that's how it was going to end um, instead of just telling us everything that line from Omega Sentinel that the mutants always win fucking yeah. changes everything it's yeah. such a huge fucking way um, that was like a i threw my con like i like had to stop <laughs> reading for a second because i was like like again like it's kind of like what i keep saying to people is that like we, we keep talking about all these things like all these concepts on x twitter you know that come up and then it's literally like i'm reading it and i'm like i didn't even think of that like like i didn't even think of that and it, like that's happened a couple times in, in inferno it was just, I was just like i didn't even so hickman's so good at this stuff like i'm really sad that he's leaving the x line because like not that i need monthly hickman although i love monthly hickman but if you just keep him 
around for like once every year or two to do shit like this to me like oh god you know like this is this is a story where you know he went back and he filled a bunch of plot holes and and no one fills my holes as good as hickman does like oh it's it's everything in in the opening that the prolonged <laughs> opening scene everything with, in everything filled your holes in its openings okay <laughs> everything yeah that opening scene with uh warlock and cypher getting to see the resurrection of the cuckoos learning that cypher has all along had access to see the no place um the no space just man <laughs> I don't know. This was this issue to me was almost almost not quite because that was just so revolutionary and like an idea. But this was almost as huge of a mind fuck to me as uh, House of X two. Like I mean that I don't think anything could ever really top the mind fuck that was. But this is close to that mm-hmm. for me. Like just the just the the Emma faint the like the the misdirect the the Doug and Warlock being more in control than they ever like let on. Like the uh, the everything about it all the. Kareemaness, the Kareemaness. Oh my God, that it was such a like that was like holy shit. It explains everything. It explains why her changes over like Hickman is great at finding a character that maybe has some inconsistencies in their history and like finding something that fucking makes sense for him. And like with Karima, that fucking makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, he takes broken characters and builds a narrative around it that makes all the different ways that they were broken like as if it was deliberate like as if like this writer's fuck up from eight and a half years ago like was a plot thread that was deftly planted for for hickman to come and uh yeah i i I love i love the moment with destiny he's doing so much good work on building destiny a character that we haven't seen in 30 years right like for real right who who we've gotten like the shadow of and like the first time you got the shadow of destiny it was like ooh, and then the second time it's like all right we're doing this again and then like the 23rd time we're like jesus fucking christ how many hidden books <laughs> like really really like destiny had a hidden diary with like that time logan had bad taco bell and it like ran through him like that's, that's we're going like we need nicholas cage we need nicholas cage to steal the declaration of independence so we can find that book like that's what we're fucking doing here she was explaining the multitude of diarrhea, diarrhea variations that Logan could have, and, and I was there for it, but it was a moment. He's he's building this so well, like her her scene with the cuckoos, where oh the my. cuckoos come out and they have mm-hmm. their like junior Emma trying to be boss bitchy, and Destiny just fucking like wrecks them, just just leaves them shattered. Is 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 so great and you know, puts her, it, it just, it puts her on an Emma level. Like it, it does. And like, literally I thought that her last line in the last quiet council meeting, when Charles tries to take her off the council and she's like, do you want me to tell you how that's going to go? <laughs> I thought that was the best line of like Hawksbox so far. Now her coming I, in and now automatically I, seating herself next to them when everyone else yes. comes in and stands in the middle and she yeah. sat herself at the head table in Apocalypse's seat is yes like we're getting her like the next era is called Destiny of X like they are he is setting this up for everyone he is he is expanding he is building like deluxe fucking lofts in the sandbox for people to fucking play in and it's 
Like, it's a shame that he's not going to come back and do, like, I hope he comes back and does this again. But, like, from what we're seeing, that, like, this might be the last time we get him doing this is is sad because it's so good. Like, you know, when we get a Hickman issue like this, you know before you even pick it up that, like, this is going to be so fucking good. And then it exceeds your expectations. Then it does things and you're like, how the fuck was it that good? Like that's a rare gem to get to get something that gives you high expectations and then just fucking blast them. I love how we just had Destiny come in and, and I have no reason to believe this isn't the accurate future for the cuckoos, but like where she's just like two will find love, three who will not, one will be changed forever, severed from the five and other world, and one who will never recover from it. I was like, holy shit, she just shattered their lives just by reading their future and she knows that. And I only wish but, but, this is but, one. Which, which is which? Wait, wait, yeah. wait. Which which is which? <laughs> and she's like, is there any difference, really? Because <laughs> well, they did their whole thing about how they love, like, yep. misdirecting people. or like, yep. you can't even tell which one we are. And she's like, well, how can I? After all, I can't tell which one's which. And just left <laughs> them, like, wrecked. <laughs> just like, uh, like, I wish, that's like one of the few times I wish Destiny didn't have a mask. So we could have just seen the face that she had when she was telling the cuckoos that. Because that would have been fucking amazing. Yeah, the how do you feel about the cuckoos giving up their individuality? Because every other writer for like the past decade has tried to find ways to make them more distinguishable from each other and give them more independent individual traits so that way like you know which is which and to separate them. And now we're seeing here with you know what was done what we're seeing done at the end of x-force how cable wrapped up and now this the like the complete opposite like nah they're they're the five in one like they are they are a unit like there will be no more you will not be able to distinguish them yeah but like even if it is like their future is like she's if she's saying that that is their future like if she, i don't know if she's telling the truth then they are still going to be like individuals because two of them are going to find love and then three of them are so um and then now do so- you think that there's two Two future love stories or do you think that we're talking about quentin and nathan like the two that we i think we're talking about quentin and nathan that's that was my feel too yeah but i I think that i really hope that in like a future issue like coming up maybe in like a couple years one of the cuckoos something like one of them dies in other worlds oh i'm sure (laughs) that's where it's going and then and then to like have them resurrected and and see what happens like with that and and how that this sort of reminded me of the closest thing I could think of, like, just to, like, grasp my head around it would be thinking about, like, 709 from Voyager and, like, her, like, fight to become a non-Borg, right? So there were times that she just sort of wanted to give up and just become part of the collective again, which is what the cuckoos are, just their collective, right? So, like, there were really a lot of times where she fought so hard to be an individual, and then I, I think it just got too much, and then she either was forced by the technology to want to be a Borg again, or she just kind of, like, gave up and wanted to be a Borg again. I think it's the same kind of thing with the Cuckoos. Like, they fought so hard, and now they're just like, let's just fucking lean into it. We're a mutant circuit. That's just what we exist for now. So you're saying that they, they, they fought so hard and tried... No, they fought so long, and they tried so hard, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Take a moment to talk about the art here, because there were three different artists. We had Arby Silva, Stefano Caselli, and Valerio Schiti. And there were some parts of this were like, 
the close, like some of Doug's faces were a little too Ken dolly. Okay. And I mean, the backgrounds and the colors, and I mean, it's, it's, it's gorgeous art all around, but like there's particularly, there's one of them where he's throwing deuces at Beast after like giving him the plants that Beast is going to turn into the drugs. <laughs> and he just, he reminds me of uh, that guy that you see on social media that like had like 83 plastic surgeries to make himself like the living Ken doll. Yeah. Um, like the, cre- like there's, there's something a little off, which I mean, again, like if, not, not to harp on the editing, but this has three artists. So each one is is doing eight to ten pages. So it's not like they didn't have a whole month. But how rushed put together, like what was the need on this that, you know, we're seeing some things in in facial expressions or other areas that are kind of less than they've been before. Although, I mean, just some of the amazing detail on, you know, Krakoa as like the big tree or the the warlock node. I mean, like some of the stuff has, you know, but then what? So, you know, they were picking and choosing their spots, you know, I'm going to focus more time here, but then I don't have enough for some other things. Like it's not even then like there's just something about like having this many artists and still kind of having things that like little points where you feel like i wish they had a little more time with the art i might with the doug pages now that i'm looking at it again i can see what you're saying i was too distracted by how fucking mad sexy they made warlock look in that in those yes okay so warlock became a rastafarian and I was but, like, oh, this is a good look for Warlock. <laughs> I am not a fan of this, of, like, him being more black. And then, like, with, under, like, I don't like, I don't like this Warlock look. I'm more of a fan of, like, the Sienkiewicz Warlock look where it's, he's more, like, like, weird and quirky looking instead of, like, an actual. Yeah, like, abstract, figure. like, he doesn't fit mm-hmm. in this world a little. Like, yeah. I, I like it feeling kind of like in Spider-Verse, like, where the different types of art style are getting juxtaposed on each other as things are like wonking like trying to like fit in like i love when warlock has that feel um kind of sexy dreadlocked anime eyes warlock is is a choice i'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) do we need sexy warlock (laughs) maybe warlock needs sexy warlock okay maybe that's what he's trying to do to try to get doug back from bay he's like Hmm, maybe if I make myself sexy warlock, self friend will fuck me instead of Bay. I was danger. Know. He had sex with danger back in uh, all new X Factor. He did, but like danger was just a side piece. It's always been Doug. It's always been Doug for Warlock. And like he's he has too much black on him. Like I like when he has more like of the yellow technology stuff. I know we so, hate yeah. it when we show this, but yes. like like Yeah, yes, yes. Now this Sinkiewicz stuff is yeah. so like it's it's otherworldly and it's amazing and like I'm there for or it. even the Rod Reyes stuff in the last few yes. mutants have yes. Been as well. Yes, yeah. yes, like Rod Reyes stuff. And so just just to clarify though, we're all in agreement with Nathan um when he's saying that uh Warlock has turned himself into a fleshlight for Doug before. <laughs> oh yeah. Probably. <laughs> I mean it's 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 all there, right? You know, Warlock goes inside Doug to protect him. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> okay. Um, going on to facial expressions again. We get to scenes with uh, Eric and Charles, right? The 
slightly less i don't want to call them the effable husbands here because that would be a whole different thing that i would have loved if we got an effable husbands but they're less ineffable than they had been and the faces here so it's not a bad face and there's not a lack of detail but we're getting magneto drawn we've had him in sword we've had him you know in any every major quiet council scene we've had him in all of these um rb silva stuff we've had him in trial of magneto and there's just a different like facial structure like but like it's a very different kind of feel to the face that again just over the course of reading the book you know it, it happened with you know the way we got Doug and Warlock you know getting you know sexy Warlock and Kendall Doug getting this Magneto face where it's like you've shown us a lot and some of these kind of changes or differences how did you feel about the, the Magneto's the faces we got from Magneto here in the um, Eric and Charles scene? To me, it like I don't. It didn't really bug me that much because, like, I mean, I know it's Magneto. I, I know by the costume, um, and I don't know. I didn't think they were that bad. The only one that I would really say I have an issue with is the you have seen the future. Many of them, his mouth is a little weird, and he's like a little. The the face is kind of weird on that one. I don't, I don't have as much of a problem, but Magneto has been such a sexy fucker lately, and he is decidedly not sexy in these panels. There we go, right? Okay, think okay, of, yeah, yeah. Think of yeah. The, the Empire crossover issue where we got sexy naked daddy Magneto. This is yeah. not that. Like, no. this is... So again, like, X-Office, you raised the bar too fucking high <laughs> for us. Like, that's the problem. Like, you gave us too much stuff that was too good, and now we're fucking spoiled. Because Drew's right. This isn't like Fallen Angels level of like, there's three characters and they're all drawn to look exactly the same and every panel's an extreme close-up and I can't tell from the corner of a mouth and half an eye which fucking character is speaking because the letterer didn't differentiate either. Like, this isn't that. But yeah, like, where's where's big, naked, sexy daddy Magneto that we were getting? Like, this is different. Yep. Yeah, I, I want him naked under the waterfall all the time. That's just where... I just want to draw that way, like, period, point blank. It's different enough that, like, yeah, I guess I, I notice or I stop and think, you know, if, if we hadn't gotten so much good Magneto and other things, I, I don't think I would. And I want to say that this is Skeety's Magneto because it feels a little more like some of the stuff from S.W.O.R.D. Um, it could be, but he he, drew, he draws Magneto pretty sexy in S.W.O.R.D. too, so. Well, there's no bad artist on here. No. I mean, we have Silva, Caselli, and Skeety. Like, yeah, there's no all amazing artists. There's yeah. no amazing. bad artists. Like, they split this up. They piecemealed this up amongst fucking studs. That's not the issue. <laughs> And, and and some of them look exactly, you know, the Nimrod and Karima, oh God, the scene where Karima opens her eye, like, there's just, like, that's done. See, that hits with all the feels of Hox Pox. Like, that feels so much like the through line threads that we got of seeing her occasionally in Hickman's X-Men series. And then I, I want to talk about this. So her future, her showing us soon the children of the vault post-humanity should emerge. They will appear to be dominant threat to supplant humanity and mutantum alike, but fractured and warring on two fronts, they would eventually fall for Koa. Post-humanity, it was believed, had arrived too early and would have to wait its turn. 
and we get to see like apocalypse with genesis and all four of his children coming back and so this is clearly a different like this has all of those ten of swords feels but like death is he like are we assuming that like god there's just so much here like to just stop and speculate like wait a minute so in her version did death not death not die in sevelith to storm like did this like did the whole tournament or things go different like was the reunification like apocalypse getting his family back like all of this just went different somehow or like it's it's fascinating as like part of how this all won and happened and the art gives so many feels from both Hoxpox and ten of swords um it's like there's just these pages here like i thought that the art mixed with the storytelling then getting to the dominions we haven't seen the dominions since powers of 10 and holy fuck i forgot how much i want dominions your excitement that was amazing (laughs) and okay so along the same line right this is a separate book but um in excalibur we got map makers from hickman's avengers new avengers lead up to secret war and seeding that shit in as part of it too like gave me a little bit of a chubby so like there's like the hickman just meta universe is so so delicious and and he makes a point to give it to us ever so sparingly which is why i want more of him like i want this in like 18 months i want him to do this to me again there was nothing in these scenes i felt which again so you know to say that like some of these scenes felt like they fit so perfect and others had little things that just felt a little bit off and i think that's gonna happen when you are putting three artists none of them doing their own inks or the colors and (laughs) a team like this for a book that's being released at the same time as the two events that it's supposed to succeed in storytelling and interspersed with other stories that are happening at the same time but you don't know which ones like there's gonna be some confusion but man none of them in these scenes like these were delivered on point yeah no i I gotta say i love (sighs) Like the the whole idea of those pages in the first place is just so fucking fascinating. Just the fact that like all this time we were led to believe that they were gonna lose. And haha, guess what? They were gonna win. But the Sentinels are fucking it up. And it's just so fucking refreshing to see that. But like that given with those beautiful art pages that really reminded me of remember those pages that we got a lot leading up to Ten of Swords with the sword that they kept talking about the damn sword like every five minutes, every five issues. Like this seems like it's that important of a panel kind of thing, these panels here. When it goes to the data page after this too, and it just like nicely meets out, lays out that entire speech that Omega Sentinel just gave. And the timeline, like yes. the revelation that everything we've had since Hoxpox is Moira Life 10B. And there was a 10A and Moira fucking won. Mm. Mind blowing. Like, goddamn, he did it again. One question I do have about the timeline, though, is like on the first page where there's like really no information except for that circle with all the numbers and it goes up to eight. I I have no fucking idea what was going on with that. Yeah, what are those numbers referencing? I'm sure we'll get them at some point, hopefully. the next issue. I, I get the feeling we'll get it in four, although I will point out that we do not always get the promised things. So one of my biggest kind of curiosities of like how well planned or how things go 
according to like Hickman's big brain plans is with his Avengers run because at the end of the very first arc they did a big circle big chart data page with circle and it was showing all the intricate parts of the Tony Stark had planned he engineered the Avengers like a machine with all of these different pieces and power supplements to complement each other to be able to meet any need or combat any battle and there were 24 it was perfectly balanced to have like 24 Avengers but we only were revealed 18 and the other six were mysteries and we were going to find out who they were and we were going to get a full 24 Avengers team and not only did the story never go that way and we never actually saw the unredacted like with the question marks revealed and get to know like we never had that it never became the full 24 like some of it was because like you know the X office killed off Wolverine and he was one of them and like there just bigger shit happened that Hickman couldn't uber control but I also remember at one point on Twitter like someone got excited and they shared with Hickman that like they're like I wish you would sell like the shirts of this like I had to go and like bootleg and make my own and they were so proud and pleased that like they had like got printed like and had their own shirt with that symbol like his big circle from Avengers and he was pissed and he's like y'all can't even be patient and wait for like the full fucking circle to come out with all 24 on them like like he had it planned like it was gonna like we were gonna see it in like six months in an issue it was already drawn out and saved on his computer and it never came like I think of that that own space in my head and I think about it because like we never fucking saw that like if that's sitting on a heart like on a fucking flash drive somewhere in his house like <laughs> we've never seen what that looks like like that dude would have been waiting forever for his bootleg <laughs> Josh is like I want to go and break into his house just to get that damn fucking file. <laughs> Y'all, I would, I would fucking make your together own a full leverage team to steal a Hickman flash drive. Um, and make your own bootleg t-shirts. But it's also caused me to lose, fa- I have a bootleg Hickman mug. It's also caused me to lose faith sometimes when I see these like mystery charts and circles that like, I hope I get to see what this is, but I, yeah. I have, I have been burned in the past and I don't 100%, I don't know that I can trust again that I will 100% be delivered the meaning of this chart. It happened in X Factor yeah. uh, with Ooh. all the resurrection protocols that like we never got answered. Ooh, did it happen in X Factor <laughs> with a like, lot of that things. That scar was <laughs> just healing. You had to rip that shit open again, Drew? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Arturo's going to listen to the Arturo, if you're listening to this, like, it's okay, buddy. Like, you you just you just hurt Arturo all over again, Drew. <laughs> just don't try to tell him how uh, in Trial of Magnet you know it's like x factor because <laughs> it's not <laughs> no i see and and so that goes to you know like the faith that the x office gave us in terms of how well and meticulously like they were controlling this because they raised the bar so high earlier on like x factor and then okay like we're just going to continue to get x factor in other stories so there's going to be season two will have a different name or other things but then like rachel seems to be getting pulled into excalibur or knights of x and lorna's getting pulled here and deken's going to be on marauders and it's like like look you want to give me an iboy solo book i'm fucking down but what the fuck happened to x factor X-Factor's dead. I mean, we've. I, I think we've just got to accept it and admit it to ourselves. It's not coming back, I don't think. X-Factor was killed in Otherworld, and it can't be resurrected, and oh, it hurts God. more than Gorgon or Rockslide. I mean, you could, like, who's even left? Like, you've got 
because Aurora is even going to be on Marauders too with uh, Dakin. So like you've got like North Star and Eyeboy going to have a book together. Like Prodigy, Prodigy needs to show up somewhere. I just want a Prodigy and Eyeboy murder mystery series where they're just they're, they're they're just the detectives, they're detective buddies. It's like it's it's like Psych. I just want Psych with Prodigy and Eyeboy. That's what I want. That's what it is. I you, would you read the hell out take, of that. You can draw, bring in Eyeboy's dad and draw him exactly like Corbin fucking Burnson. Um, that's what I want. <laughs> that's right ass book you need to pitch that to marvel josh <laughs> pitch the fuck out of that shit uh so i do believe that there's only one more issue of hickman left right now this one wraps up i guess i, I really shouldn't shouldn't go into the end yet because moira gets kidnapped and then apparently uh destiny and mystique go in and slaughter a whole fucking crew of people who kidnap moira and they cut Moira's arm off and leave it behind in, like, the most gangster fucking shit ever. Like, so that way Charles and Eric can trace her ring because they left her fucking arm there, surrounded by all the bodies of the people they killed to get her. Like, yeah, bitches. And and they have her somewhere, and they sent, and now the Omega Sentinel and Nimrod are coming back. And God, I love... So Nimrod, Nimrod is a piece, right? When we first talk about our like time shenanigans and coming back and things like Nimrod is a piece that was handled so well and then got lobdelled and was handled so poorly. And now Hickman has taken like another one of those, like taken all that brokenness and made it look like it was broken on purpose so the pieces could fit together just like this. And I, I love, I love when we get Nimrod moments again. And so Nimrod and Omega, I guess Sentinel coming in at the end here. Like, there's... Uh, how can there only be one more issue of this? And don't forget, every single one of these is a double issue. Like, Is it... If you told me this was 20 pages, or if you told me this was 50 pages, I would believe you. I made a comment about, like, how it was getting split up and how many pages the artists were doing earlier, and then I just kind of, like... I was like, you know what? I can't even... I can't count that high. I have no idea how many pages are in this book. I'm just gonna say, like, 8 to 10 or 12-ish each. I don't fucking... Like, it's a big book. And you could give me so much more, like... Like I, how is this all not, not that it's wrapping up, but how is the conclusion of this part of the story coming in one more issue? It's set up so much, especially with, it, it, it can't be a satisfying conclusion. Just like Hawksbox itself wasn't really a satisfying conclusion as much as a beginning. And I think that's the only thing it's, this can really set up in the next issue. Because, I mean, we we just, in this issue, got, like, three big factions really revealed. So we've got, you know, you've got Xavier and Eric. You've got Mystique and Destiny, who Emma worked with. And then you've got Emma, who's just standing alone for the children, but for herself. So you, you're really just setting up the factions and the destiny of x era and i don't think it can do anything else but continue to set that up i don't think it can i don't think it can do anything to solve the omega sentinel problem i don't think it can really do anything but get moira out of being kidnapped because obviously she can't die or reality is going to reset and keep her alive you have to keep her alive maybe you put her in stasis or something star tricky But, like, you've got to do something with her to get her out of the situation she's in. At least Mystique and Destiny know that she can't die, so they won't be able to kill her. Like, the one thing I really 
I missed when Emma revealed that Moira was alive. I really wish Mystique had said, what the fuck? I fucking killed that bitch already. Like, how is she still alive? Like, because remember, Mystique basically killed Moira. Yeah, not basic. Well, okay. So before the retcon, yes. Mystique. Yeah, yeah, no. In Dream's End, Mystique was responsible for that. She was. She she didn't, like, deliver the killing blow. It was, like, the injuries. But Mystique killed, I mean, Mystique killed Moira. Yeah. Gollum Moira. But yeah. No, Mystique, Mystique, Mystique had been going after, Mystique had wanted her since um, Uncanny 255, 256. And no, she, she got her and she got her early in like issue one or two of that four parter. And then Mystique slowly like succumbed to the injuries on like the plane back over the next two with Rain crying. And when the fuck am I getting a Rain and Moira scene? I'm sorry. I yes. just remembered how much I need that. But okay, there's another thing about because I, I reread Dreams End again because I was like, hmm, let me reread this. See if there's any. I reread so it remember... at the beginning of Hawks Pox, so that's why I'm kind of like not being as specific as I should because that was somewhere between two and ten years ago. I don't remember. <laughs> We have to remember, Mystique has the nullifier gun, basically. So, like, she used it on Rain. So, like, why wouldn't she still have it? Why couldn't she still use it on Moira at this point in time to, like, in the Moira Tin saga kind of thing? Like, she could just nullify her fucking powers and kill her. Like, would that stop the is, The The thing is, is Destiny and Moira want Krakoa. And Krakoa can't come about without Moira. So they they are in a... Because remember, the whole reason they killed Moira the first time was because Moira was trying to end all mutants. They've shaped Moira into a person that made Mutant Utopia, which is what they want. They need her alive or Mutant Utopia goes away. They hate her and need her. Whoa, 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 whoa. What if Destiny has over all of Moira's lives just been working to fucking shape this moment right here like literally like what if like she knows i would totally buy that with what like we've seen from the original like from from that first time when she you know when when she uh set her on fire i want i want an (laughs) x-men crack video with with that scene playing uh this girl is on fire (laughs) oh no I, I I would love to see. I can't see the look Drusifer is giving me right now, but <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see. Like it, we think, the big reveal is going to be that Moira actually killed Destiny on Muir Island instead of the I have said that since the fucking <laughs> beginning, a hundred percent. I've been waiting with all the Shadow King stuff. I want, like, in our next New Mutants issue, for them to talk about, like, you know, for him to, like, apologize or, like, be like, I'm so sorry. And then they're like, end this. And they mention Muir Island Saga. And he's like, that wasn't me. I was never fucking there. Like, <laughs> and that it was all Moira and Xavier just pretending to be abducted by Shadow King so they could <laughs> fucking kill Destiny and Mystique. That's, that's the retcon I've been waiting for since House of X 2. But, like, you think that's the big reveal, but then the big reveal on top of that is, like, no, Irene has just been pulling everybody's fucking strings all along. That's what I want. Like, that'd be some, like, top-level shit, and I need that. I mean, she went to her death willingly. She knew that that was where she was supposed to go in 255. There's a lot to write. Claremont gave you good stuff to work with there. She did. That was... There's so much in between the pages of that that, like... Oh. I reread that issue so many times. Oh my god, yes. it's like it's, it's epic. It's heartbreaking. I fucking loved it. The it's whole become time. essential since 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 it House has. of X two. It has that real that deep that dream sequence sequence that she's in. Oh, like when she realized she's gonna die, and then the tear. Oh, although I also love like have you ever read the story from the X Factor Annual where Mystique throws uh, Destiny's ashes? Yes, that's amazing too. But yeah. They're just good friends. That's how. That's what. That's what. <laughs> they, that's were what <laughs> they were roommates. They were roommates. Roommates. 
<laughs> that comfort each other in the middle of the night. I love, so I love the work that we got on Mystique in the Howard Mackie X Factor as well. I think there's a lot of that that is a great follow-up to Claremont's end with the death of Destiny and, and what happened to Mystique there. I think it gets forgotten a lot that that Mystique run and her vengeance wanting to kill Legion because Legion killed Destiny is why we got Age of Apocalypse. The The death of Destiny is is a huge running thread throughout X-Men history. And none of the best pieces are lost journals of destiny. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, for all of those amazing things, how many fucking times do we get the saga of the fucking diaries? (laughs) Like just fucking like Kate Pride knocks a picture over and she's like, kitty right here come and get the pick and she's like what the f-? that's why i think it's so and like why it's so important that she's brought they brought her back is because like you said in the claremont run she was such an important part both of them were with like being in freedom force and that so like if they're a major part of x-men lore then why are they not like they should be currently in the books too right like i need just... i need a destiny and rogue moment i need a rain and yes. moment like i have things the nightcrawler moment i got when he voted to, to to bring destiny back for because he wanted his mom to be happy like that's the shit that like i've been waiting for like he's been on the quiet council with his mom the entire goddamn time and no one ever mentioned that until now like i know that Hick- hickman did a an interview with aipt and he said that he had to cut all of the rogue and mystique stuff out of it because he just didn't have enough enough, no! like, enough but, but yeah he decided to leave in the Golden Girls joking about taking pills <laughs> in issue one, right? You know, like with horticulture and yeah, with the weird monkey doctor. I forgot his name. Everything was not essential. A lot of it was really, really good, but everything was not essential. <sighs> Inferno. Okay. So my last question to you, and, and some of this is, is my feelings. I, I don't know how much everyone else feels about this. Some people love solicits. I, I love, in one hand, like, I, I am excited about Destiny of X. I hate, 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 hate that I have seen Destiny of X solicits and ads before Inferno ended. Like, all of that should have been, like, a fold-out poster after you get to the last page of Inferno 4. Like, they'd done it before. I think of Mr. and Mrs. X, and remember the mystery solicits for the book coming after X-Men Gold 30? They've done and sold moderate, like, sold pretty well on mystery solicits. Like, they have our fucking money. Like, they know they have our money. Like... Don't spoil shit. Like, I don't know. That's my feeling. How are you guys in terms of your excitement for Destiny of X and what you know? Do you want to know more? Do you wish you knew less? But what's coming post and now? Uh, I'm excited, but I'm also kind of like mad about it just because like, like I'm really in all of this for the Hickman of it all. And now that he's leaving, I'm just kind of like, Arr. like, I'm still going to pick everything up in that, but I'm less into it as I am currently. But there are like titles that I am like super, super, super excited for, like Immortal X-Men. I'm super pumped for. It's, yeah. It's it's a pack of Starburst and Hickman are the straw, they're the pink ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like all the Starburst, but I only have one pink one left and like... <laughs> I will enjoy the lemons and the oranges after, but they're not the same. They're not the pink ones. The pink one is the best of all the (laughs) servers. That's like, that's truly 
that's a good analogy. It's twofold, right? So with the solicit reveals, they do have that order cutoff date, which is uh, usually comes before the issue comes out that they're doing. So that's, that's why they had to do the reveal with Mr. and Mrs. X, because they're like, okay, cool. People really want to get a Rogue and Gambit book. They need they to know did, about this. They did mystery solicit. You didn't, you knew that there was a book coming featuring a new X couple. There was, it was led to believe it would be Kitty and Colossus. Most people felt we're probably getting psyched out because they solicited the wedding, but wouldn't solicit the book to follow. But they mystery solicited the book to follow. We knew the creative team on it, but they wouldn't show us the cover or tell us who was in it. They did right before the final order cutoff date because they wanted to make sure people knew that it would be something big and exciting and not just like, oh, Kitty and Peter got married. Uh, Who cares? But it, it doesn't make sense now because these books aren't coming out till March, April. So they didn't even have to solicit them in the first place. Like we're not, we're not there yet. We're, we're not we're, at FOC. We're not. Yeah, we're not. But also too, like that sort of era started just everybody fucking needing and all the information. COVID supply chain, we won't be reading these until September. <laughs> right? <laughs> So, but there, there are like, okay, so there's ways they could have done it. Like they could have solicited, you know, Legion of X without giving us the full team and especially the reveal for Blindfold, which like, okay, cool. That's a huge, big reveal. Mm-hmm. Like, why would, like, why would you fucking reveal that? Like, you, you don't have to do it. and teased that all throughout Way of X. Yeah. Like that should be a in-book reveal. That should like, yeah. yes. Yeah, or, or like, you know, like, Rachel being on Knights of X, or whoever, whatever thing you want to say. Or, like, why would, why would they reveal Cassandra fucking Nova right now and make me really not want to read Marauder? <laughs> like, because there's no point for all of it. Like, it, it's just a hype machine, and Marvel has been good at hype lately, but they've also been really bad at spoiling their own shit. Especially, like, they released that Scarlet Witch died, like, the day after she died in the trial of my, uh, tri- in the Hellfire Gala. Like, they revealed that Storm was the region of soul the same day the comics actually came out. So, like, they are just, like, they don't No, they have care. been on their account spoiling shit yep. mm-hmm. the regularly. Yeah. The Part of me wonders how much of this is in response to DC. DC was such a fucking dumpster fire for the better part of a decade and now since warner brothers cleaned house and then what we've been getting with future state into infinite frontier there is so much good exciting product coming out at dc for the first time in a long time that i i wonder if that's putting a little fear or pressure mm. on that like marvel's like even when new 52 happened like marvel took that shit in stride they're like okay they're yeah. gonna spend a billion dollars fucking marketing this thing and they're gonna have huge numbers the first month or two but we've got them long term yep. and they never broke stride and they did they took right back over by month three um i i wonder if the feeling of re-emerging competition for the first time in a long time is affecting the need to push market spoil storytelling to increase sales because marvel's owned shit marvel's owned shit like between what the mcu did in terms of increasing popularity outside of your direct reader market and just the way dc couldn't get out of their own way for 10 15 years like marvel owned shit 
They still do, but there's a legitimate threat. There is. There's there legitimate is. competition. There is. And then you've also got the, the streaming wars of comics with like Substack and, you know, you've got... Substack's hurting them in terms of taking fucking creators away. Both Marvel and yeah, DC. Yeah, yeah. Both yeah. Marvel and DC are feeling the, feeling the hurt and wondering what that's going to mean in terms of the contracts and compensations they have to provide to creators um, moving forward. I think Absolutely. it's kind of like the... the the streaming netflix of it all right so like you know when netflix started streaming right they weren't a player but they started getting these you know these big names to do shows and they started upping the content and i think that's what marvel and dc are seeing with things like subsec and other stuff like it that they have the possibility to to attract these big names because like you've got big names on there right you've got like hickman you've got Kenny howard you've got all of these huge names on there yes like you've got all these huge names and eventually they're gonna start cranking out the quality level of what they're doing for the big two and people are going to start noticing it and then it's going to change your model and it's going to change like things and the industry is going to have a hard time adjusting because the print industry has to favor the local comic shop but the digital industry of it all is like fuck the comic shop and the print industry is just like i it hit a whole nother level when we started seeing publishers announce that they there would be no more second printings. Nothing could return to print because due to paper shortages, like they had to so carefully ration what they were printing and how much that they couldn't, it would fuck up future lines and deliveries and things that were already ordered if they went back. So they're like, guess what? Popular books are going to be bigger collector items now. There's a good for you. Buy them when they first come out because... Second printings, we we can't um, like that. That was like, oh, y'all are <laughs> y'all are really having your decision making process affected here, like. <laughs> Because second printings are guaranteed extra money. Like, it's an easy, like, the mystery of what will we sell on everything else. Second printings are like, nah, that's a fucking, like, that's a check that won't bounce. It's some real gimme shit right there. And like, and they know some of the second printing stuff becomes third printing stuff or fourth printing stuff. So like, like the shortage right now is affecting business and the print business and everything has to be so geared to keeping comic shops happy that they are going to have a harder time keeping up with the changes. Just like if you think of like a blockbuster or a Hollywood video with the video industry. And if they aren't able to adapt, as much as I love actually having a physical comic book, like if they aren't able to adapt and make their business model more flexible, they are not going to survive it. The majority of, you know, the issues in the delivery of this storytelling and, and what it means for the overall X line are not, are out of the editor's control or out of the creator's control. We do wish that they made stronger efforts to try to give us you know a storytelling experience on par with Hoxpox, especially for something as special as inferno is turning out to be but we do understand that the world is much like moira in in life three or four uh the world is on fire and you know it continues to burn <laughs>